0: This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review some issues for my comic book collection, which often I will select at random. Any books for my comic book collection are eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents. Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 95th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're continuing our journey through the Vertigo Vortex by looking at Sandman issues 47, 48, and 49 from the Vertigo imprint of DC Comics cover dated March, April, and May 1993. These issues are the last three parts of the nine-part Brief Lives storyline. This arc was nominated for a 1993 Eisner for Best Serialized Story. There's no feedback in this episode, because I did want to talk about two pieces of news or follow-ups that uh, I want to go over right here. I opened episode 93 with an audio clip from author and podcaster Thomas DJ. I spoke with Tom recently for the Book Guy show about his new Shadow Legion novel, or collection of short stories actually, Nightmare City. And as of this recording, that interview has not been released yet. That timing is up to Paul the Book Guy, but I'm sure it will come out soon. I really enjoyed Thomas's first Shadow Legion novel, New Roads to Hell, from a few years back. We actually talked to him back then on the Book Guy show as well. I'm partway through Nightmare City, and so far, I'm really enjoying it. If you don't mind, your superhero stories do not have any pictures, but just be like words, like prose. I definitely recommend Thomas DJ's two novels. I bought mine from Amazon, but they can be found plenty of places. Uh, I was planning on talking about the books in that same episode where the intro clip appeared, but it slipped my mind. Fortunately, novels are evergreens. You can still pick up the new one, or both of them, if you haven't yet read New Roads to Hell. And then the sad news. Back on episode 91 the first of the issues covering The Weird, I talked about Bernie Wrightson's health issues and drew the comparison to Darwin Cook. My point was that maybe no news was good news. And I commented that I didn't want my comments about the man to be considered a eulogy, which it definitely wasn't. Except that it did sort of turn out to be just that. On March 19th, 2017, Liz Wrightson, Bernie's wife, now widow, posted this on BernieWrightson.com. It is with great sorrow that I must announce the passing of my beloved husband, Bernie. We thank you for all the years of love and support. His obituary is below. I am abridging the obit, but I did want to hit on a few points, a couple of of Wrightson's accomplishments. After a long battle with brain cancer, legendary artist Bernie Wrightson has passed away. Wrightson, born October 27, 1948, in Baltimore, Maryland, was an American artist known for his horror illustrations and comic books. Wrightson began working for the Baltimore Sun newspaper as an illustrator. The following year, after meeting artist Frank Frazetta, At a comic book convention in New York City, he was inspired to produce his own stories. In 1968, he showed copies of his sequential art to DC Comics editor Dick Giordano and was given a freelance assignment. His first professional comic work appeared in House of Mystery No. 179 in 1968. He continued to work on a variety of mystery and anthology titles, for both DC and its rival, Marvel Comics. In 1971, with writer Len Wein, Wrightson co-created the Muck Creature Swamp Thing for DC. He also co-created Destiny, later to become famous in the work of Neil Gaiman. We'll be talking about Destiny in just a few minutes, as a matter of fact. By 1974, he had left DC to work on the black-and-white horror comic magazines of Warren Publishing. Wrightson spent seven years drawing approximately 50 detailed pen and ink illustrations to accompany an edition of Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, which the artist considers among his most personal work. Wrightson drew the poster for the Stephen King-penned horror film Creepshow, as well as illustrating the comic book adaptation of the film. He contributed album covers for a number of musical acts, including Meatloaf. Characters he worked on over his career included Spider-Man, Batman, and The Punisher, and he provided painted covers for a variety of comics. Bernie lived in Austin, Texas with his wife Liz and two corgis, Mortimer and Maximilian. In addition to his wife, he is survived by two sons, John and Jeffrey, one stepson, Thomas Adamson, and countless friends and fans. A celebration of his life is planned for later this year. Alright, on to Sandman. By the way, a few episodes back, I guessed that the Animal Man books would be the earliest Vertigos that I covered in the series, seeing as they were only a few months into the existence of the Vertigo imprint. Well, I may have been a little hasty in that proclamation, as these Sandman issues are from a few months before that. Matter of fact, the first of these issues, issue 47, is the first Sandman issue to carry the Vertigo labeling, so it's really hard to get any earlier than these. I'm going to give a combined synopsis here for all three issues, and then discuss the issues and the series after the promo break. Sandman 47 and 48 had cover prices of $1.75, meaning I acquired those books at almost an 86% price reduction. Sandman 49 had the outrageous cover price of $1.95, meaning I acquired that book at an even better 87% discount. Only on this podcast is it a good thing when cover prices go up Because that just increases our discount. All of these are, of course, written by Neil Gaiman. These are drawn by Jill Thompson and inked by Vince Locke, with a little help from Dick Giordano in one of the issues. And as is the case with every cover in the entire 75-issue run of Sandman, these three covers are by Dave McKean. They're not really worth describing because they aren't meant to... Display what's going to be found inside the comic in terms of character or plot. They're intended to be distinct individual pieces of art that convey a general tone of the series, or or at least of a particular arc. Over the course of the 75 issues, McKean's work incorporated drawing, painting, photography, found objects, collage, digital art, and sculpture. Like I said before, these are the final three issues of Brief Lives, the arc that started in issue 41. Very broadly, the story so far is that Dream's erratic younger sister, Delirium, convinces him to help her search for their missing brother, Destruction, who left his place among the family of the Endless 300 years before. Issue 47 starts in the super-secret hideaway of Destruction, who has decided to learn the ancient art of cooking. He explains to his canine companion Barnabas that cooking is a creative art. Barnabas, who can talk, by the way, has little enthusiasm for Destruction's creative efforts, let alone his view of art in general. He notes that dogs have more sense we don't make fools of ourselves like you do. Meanwhile, Dream and Delirium have decided to resume their search for their elder brother, though they have no useful leads. Dream decides that their next step should be to speak to their brother Destiny in his garden. But in order to get there, Delirium points out that they will need a thing, with all the wiggly thingies coming out of it. Dream deduces that she means a labyrinth. Delirium transports them to an amusement park, and their weird appearances just let them kind of blend in with the attendees and the carnies. They enter the crazy maze, and just keep walking, and turning, left, right, left. One by one, the other maze walkers vanish, and odd items of statuary appear. They cross a river, they keep walking. And since every maze throughout the universe is connected at its core to Destiny's domain, they eventually find their brother. Naturally, Destiny has been expecting them, and he knows why they've come. His advice is simple that they give up their search, but he knows already that they will not. Until now, you've been content to respect his wishes do likewise in the time to come. But Dream can't do that. In his typically cryptic manner, Destiny suggests that pursuit of destruction will have harsh consequences for Dream, but he cannot or will not elaborate. Unwelcome is Destiny's further information that the woman Dream pines for will never be his again. Finally, all Destiny can tell Dream is that they need an oracle who can discern about the Endless. The family does have an oracle, but there's a problem. The one oracle they know is Dream's son, Orpheus. But Dream has promised that he will never visit his son again. Delirium has an actual conversation with Destiny, who comments that it's... Refreshing to see a sister so collected. Dream and Delirium depart for the Greek Isles. They arrive at Orpheus' shrine, guarded by a Greek family, who are very confused how the pair got there, and Delirium's explanation does not exactly help. We started out in a maze place, and then we went to my brother's garden, and then we came here, and it was all on one path. After some delay, Dream enters his son's shrine, while Delirium plays beside the gravestone of Lady Joanna Constantine. Dream returns with the knowledge they were seeking, which came at a cost. I owe my son a boon in return. But Delirium points out the good news that nobody got killed or exploded or anything. The pair are rowed to a nearby neighboring island, where they are greeted by Barnabas the dog. And then Destruction greets his siblings and welcomes them into his home for conversation and for the banquet that he has prepared for them. Issue 48 picks up right there with the dinner meal. Dream and Delirium have little interest in the mortal food that their brothers made for them. Delirium explains the lengths to which she and Dream went to find him. And Dream tells about how the rest of the family is, which is more or less the same. Finally, Destruction asks the obvious question. You came looking for me. You found me. Now what? Delirium hopes that he will come back with them and take up his post again, because, as she says it, then everything will be all right and the family will be back and and all together and we'll all talk and like each other again. Dream explains that he came out of honor, having witnessed a mortal named Ruby killed as a result of their search. Destruction comments that Dream's feelings about Ruby suggest that he has undergone quite a change over the last 300 years. An observation Dream does not totally agree with. Destruction asks how they found him, and Dream admits that the information came from Orpheus. Destruction always liked the boy and considered visiting him, just walking over and saying hello. But he couldn't. No. He's still family, after all. Then we get to the heart of the matter. Destruction explains that he left because the Endless do not actually control the domains over which they preside. They don't have the power they think they have. Destruction occurs with or without him embodying that force. He compares each of them to one side of a two-sided coin. Without destruction, there can be no creation. Without despair, what is hope? Without dream, perhaps there can be no reality? After this very interesting conversation, Dream asks his brother, The million-dollar question. Will you return? Will you reassume your role once more? Of course not. I thought you would, comments Delirium. I'm sorry, Lassie. He later tells her that he enjoyed seeing her, that she was always his favorite. Sadly, Destruction resigns himself to the fact that he must leave again now that he's been discovered by the family. But before going, he wraps up his sword and his magic pool in a tiny little handkerchief and hangs that on the end of a stick. He bequeaths his dog Barnabas to delirium as some consolation for the fact that he himself will not be rejoining them. And then he just walks into the stars. Afterwards, After Delirium and Barnabas and Dream return to her domain, Dream tells her what he has to do next. I have to kill my son. Issue 49 starts back inside Orpheus' temple. Keeping his promise to his son, Dream visits the temple. Though he is scared, Orpheus asks him to give him the gift of death. To be clear, he has lived for years as a disembodied head, so it's not that crazy a request. Reluctantly, and with a measure of sensitivity, Dream picks his son's head up, kisses his forehead, and then takes Orpheus' life. Dream wanders out of the temple his bloody hand, dripping into the grass underfoot, which sprouts new blood-red flowers wherever the blood lands. He joins Delirium outside, and they are joined by their sister, Despair. She asks after Destruction, and is pleased to know that he spoke fondly of her. After Dream takes his leave, Despair confides in her younger sister that she regrets not having come with them to find Destruction. And she regrets not having seen him again, which, as Despair, is sort of her thing. Delirium soon leaves as well, taking, now, her dog, Barnabas, with her. Despair returns to her gallery, bringing with her two of the red flowers. She finds her twin, Desire, waiting there, and offers her one of the flowers, and they have a very intense family discussion, mostly about Dream. Desire points out that it could have been worse. They could have dragged our sister and destiny into the mess. It's strange, my twin. I thought I'd have been delighted to see this day. Our brother Dream is humiliated. He's been rude and boorish. He's stuffy and stupid and thinks he knows everything. And there's just something about him that gets on my nerves. But I can't help feeling sorry for him. She concludes, he was like a disaster waiting to happen. Despair says that you cannot seek destruction and return unscathed. But Desire points out that Delirium actually managed to do that. But Despair comes back with, Delirium has been scathed enough in her time. The twin sisters admit that they are both scared for what may happen next. In his realm, in the Dreaming, Dream sends a message to his son's caretaker that his last task as guardian of Orpheus should be to bury his head safely, but erect no marker. He returns to his castle, where he recognizes the pendant around his fairy friend Nuala's neck was one that once belonged to the woman who left him. He realizes that perhaps he has finally gotten over her. Afterwards, he instructs Lucian to find a way to thank and reward all of those who helped him find his brother. In the privacy of his quarters, Dream finally washes the blood from his hands. And in the basin, he sees an image of his son. He tells the boy that he should have gone to his lover's funeral to say goodbye. Having done this, Dream collapses in a chair in the dark, in quiet. Elsewhere around the world, all of those who are involved in his journey deal with the repercussions thereof, positive or negative. Meanwhile, the Greek caretaker and his family bury Orpheus' head under a cherry tree, hoping that his spirit is in Elysium with his beloved Eurydice. Perhaps he is at rest, and the old caretaker takes stock of his own mortality, knowing that he will not live to see the cherry tree blossom again. The end. To the Batpoles! The iTunes reviews are in on To the Batpoles podcast. These guys do a good job, writes Acello. Who knew that the Batman TV show was such a wellspring of insight into Hollywood trivia, 60s counterculture, sexual mores, and even musical analysis? The young brothers know their stuff, says Professor Allen. It is a great mix of nostalgia, analysis, and fun. Highly recommended. You've heard the reviews, now try it for yourself. New episodes on the first, third, and fifth Thursdays of the month on iTunes or Stitcher or at tothebatpolls.libsyn.com. Batman, Batman, the answer to a policeman's prayer. For nostalgia, analysis, and fun, it's... To the Batpoles. And we're back. I am not unbiased. When it comes to Sandman, I think it's a masterpiece, one of the best stories ever put into serialized form. There, I've said it. And even though it was being published, while I was still in phase one of my life as an active collector, I didn't read this while it was fresh, but it was one of the books that brought me back to comics. And I came back to comics because of a podcast. When I got my first iPod, Christmas 2007, I dived deep into the world of podcasts. And among that first dozen or so that I found was a terrific one called Geeks On. It was a super active show through 2010, putting out 130, 140 episodes over those first six years. Since then, they've alternated between long hiatuses and bouts of productivity, including a seven-episode burst uh, last summer, 2016. Along with the movie podcast Battleship Pretension, Geeks On was one of the major influences on how M and I formulated the concept for Shortbox Showcase. Anyway, their episode 47 of Geeks On was non-mainstream comics which pretty much meant non-superhero comics, or at least non-traditional takes on superhero concepts. And this was the episode that paved my way back into being a comic book reader, as opposed to just being a dude with five long boxes in his basement. Now, in the mid-80s to early 90s, I was reading non-hero books, sci-fi books, action-adventure, fantasy, spy-adventure stuff. Obviously, John Sable falls into there, but also books like Somerset Holmes, Axel Press Button, Eternity Smith, and many others. So, the idea of non hero comics or non mainstream comics wasn't new to me, but hearing these guys talk about what was going on in that side of the comic book world since I'd left the hobby really sparked my interest. And in that episode, the books that intrigued me most often were from Vertigo. And what was then the new second phase of Image Comics, Walking Dead, Ex Machina, Invincible, Why the Last Man, Runaways, Gotham Central Identity Crisis, all of these stories were mentioned in that episode as examples of some of the best things that the comic book form can do. That episode also mentioned the books from this episode, Sandman, and the next two episodes, Hundred Bullets and Fables. And it was at this time that I either heard the concept or came up with the concept. Uh, it crystallized, at least for me, uh, an idea, a notion that we've mentioned many times over on Shortbox Showcase and plenty of other places as well. And that is that comics are not a genre. They're a medium. And within that medium, within that mode of telling a story, You can tell any type of story. I don't have a problem with superhero stories. Those have been the vast majority of what's been covered here on the podcast. But I do have a problem with the idea that those are the only stories that should be told via comic book. Or the misconception that superhero stories are the only stories ever told in comic book form. And it's not that I ran right out after listening to that geeks-on episode and picked up a bunch of these trades. But the next time I was in the library, or at least saw a graphic novel display at a library, I recognized some of those titles. Picked a few of them up. I'm pretty sure I started with Why the Last Man, but I quickly ran through a bunch of these, and I was back in. So it started with a podcast episode, and then moved to the library. And then a few years later, I discovered The Quarter Bins, and then M tricked me into becoming a podcaster, and now we've got a pull list. So I'm back in, all the way. And it started with books like this, with books like Sandman. Like I said, this was one of the best things I read during that era of of returning to comics. In terms of the long-form stories I've read, I think this holds together from start to finish. Maybe the best of them all. Some of the others didn't stick the landing 100% satisfactorily to me, or they gave the impression of rushing the ending, or not being totally confident with where the story was going as it was wrapping up. But that was never a problem I had with Sandman. But we're not here to talk about Sandman in general, or the final issue, issue 75. We're here to talk about Sandman 47, 48, in 49. First things first, these were probably the first books that really surprised me, shocked me, to find at the quarter bin sales over at uh, In the Ballpark. Those first few years of sales, I found a ton of Superman books to read along with the excellent From Crisis to Crisis podcast. And that's what most of the books in those bins were the overproduced, overhyped books from the 90s. Now, I certainly found other stuff that I wanted. I completely rebuilt my John Sable collection. I found every issue of ROM. found a ton of Warlords. And I love those books. I love those stories. But they aren't exactly award-winning, critically acclaimed series, where the trade paperbacks are still steady sellers more than 20 years later, never gone out of print. I was certainly happy to find those books, among many others. I was excited to find those, but I can't say I was surprised <laughs> to find books like that. But finding some issues of Sandman in the quarter bins, that legitimately shocked me. According to the database, I've nabbed about a dozen of these 75 issues of Sandman from the quarter bins, but these three were the only. Consecutive ones, or at least they were the only ones that wrapped up an arc. So I thought that they were a, a good way to go. One of the interesting things that this series does, that Sandman does, is that although it's telling one long, cohesive story, every arc is a little bit different from every other arc. One of the unique things about Brief Lives is the nature of the titles of the stories in this arc. The other 66 issues of Sandman have titles of the general nature of traditional comic book stories. Some of the titles are a little weird. Parliament of Rooks, Dream of a Thousand Cats. But they followed general comic book titling uh, protocol. But this arc and these three issues had titles that were made up of brief descriptions of the scenes in the story. It's hard to explain, so let me just give you the examples. The actual, official title of Issue 47 is Cooking, Considered as One of the Fine Arts, My Envelope Isn't Any Good Anymore, Where All Mazes Meet, The Other Side of the Coin, Life is a Glass of Bitter Wine, Cherries are Counted and a Bargain is Made, and Unlikely Growth. That is the title of the issue. The other ones are a little bit shorter, but they do follow this same pattern. The title of issue 48 is Journey's End. Brains, a heart, a ride in a balloon. Dinner, something new. The illusion of permanence, a wreath of bright stars, echoes of darkness, up, out. And for issue 49, the title is Farewells, Answered Prayers. The Flower of Romance, Journey's End, The Gates of Horn, Things Unlooked For, Brief Lives. Now, in my synopses, I did not necessarily hit on each of these scenes or quotes or comments, but trust me, they are all notable bits from each issue, and it's an intriguing way to title an issue. These are, in essence, tables of contents for the issue, sort of an intriguing... Invitation to the scenes that are coming up in the issue. I'm not saying I want this to be the standard of comic book titling. But I like the notion that Gaiman did something different with something as basic as what do you title the comic book. That's what we need more of more often. Something different. Also, each arc had a different artist, Jill Thompson, was an excellent choice for the title. I find her style to be deceptively kid-friendly. Kid-friendly because hers is a simplistic line style. She has great facial expressions, great eyes. But I say deceptively because she's also able to lay in some undertones that are dark, that are grim, that are just a bit off-putting. And she does a great job with the character of Delirium here. She had appeared in a few issues before, but this arc is her first starring role, if you will. And Thompson imbues her with a mix of manic, kid-like emotionalism. Her body changes a little bit. Her clothes change a bit, all reflective of her mood, or, or what she's feeling at a particular time, what she's thinking. It's very effective. I need to point out also the work of letterer Todd Klein. In these stories, each of the members of the Endless have their own speech bubble particulars and or font. Morpheus, Dream himself, always speaks white words against a black background inside of a jagged speech bubble, as an example. And that fits his dark and self-important personality. But what is done here for Delirium's speech is terrific. How the collaboration between letterer and writer and editor works on this, who comes up with the concept, who has the final say, I don't know. But it was Todd Klein that executed it, so I'm giving him some credit here. There's color involved in delirium speech, so maybe Daniel Vazzo deserves a shout-out, too. Anyway, what they do is give her a speech bubble that's just a little bit off. It's not jagged or sharp or angular like dreams, but it has a bit of, I don't know, a flow to it. They're not perfectly round or, or, or oval, but it's also the words themselves, and this is where the lettering comes in. The size of her words change, sometimes from letter to letter. They aren't lined up perfectly horizontal either. There's a waviness to the letters themselves, to the words themselves. And to top it off, she speaks inside of rainbow-colored bubbles. And again, that's a perfect way of visually depicting... A meandering, not centered, not level-headed approach to thought and speech, which is exactly what Delirium does. There are a lot of places in stories like this where creators have to make choices. And it just seems that so many of the choices made by Gaiman and his collaborators in this series were just so often so much the right choices to make. And for what it's worth, from what I can tell, Neil Gaiman seems to be a heck of a nice guy. Especially compared to some of his colleagues from the British invasion of comic writers. Not calling out specific people, but if you think of a British creator whose last name starts with an M, you're probably thinking of someone who doesn't have the reputation of being the nicest, gentlest, easiest-to-work-with person in comics. Just saying. But Gaiman seems to be legitimately a pretty good bloke. I do think that there's some backlash against Gaiman from comic book folks, partly because his books, Sandman especially, appeal beyond comic book fans. His work brought new readers to comic books, to comic book stores including some who were girls. And in logic I just don't get, a couple of decades ago, having girls in the comic book store was enough to annoy some comic book dudes. And of course, all that did was drive those customers, many of them female, out of the comic store and into, I don't know, Borders or Barnes & Noble to buy their Sandman and Death Trade paperbacks. And of course, all that did was reinforce every dumb stereotype about us and also hurt the financial bottom line of those comic book stores who were unwelcoming to new customers. Gaiman also gets overlooked, I think, by a segment of comic fandom because he just hasn't done a ton of traditional comic work. The majority of his work is on Sandman and the related materials. Or is just stuff out of the mainstream. Black Orchid, uh, Marvel 1602, Books of Magic, whatever happened to the Caped Crusader. And Gaiman is a writer who has done some comic books, not a career comic book writer. And I think that annoys a segment of fandom as well, but I personally love it when novelists or screenwriters or anyone else who wants to, does some comic book work. Comic book writing pays very little, especially if you're working for one of the big two. So if comic book writing is just part of a writer's portfolio, part of their career, and they deliver excellent work, like Gaiman usually does, I don't resent it. I appreciate it. Somehow there's this notion that that lessens the comic book field. I actually think it helps the comic book field. My father reads a ton of thriller and spy novels, that sort of thing. And whenever I see him reading a Greg Ruckin novel or a Brad Meltzer thriller, I always point out to him that those guys whose work he really likes have written some great comic books in their career. I think that raises his opinion of comic book writing. I just want great comic book stories and Neil Gaiman especially in Sandman wrote some great comic book stories the verdict on Sandman 47 48 and 49 are you kidding me have you not been listening to the last half hour seriously these are not just good comics they are great comics because of the nature of the long-form storytelling that Gaiman's doing here, you know, pulling a single issue from a cheap bin might not work for you. I I, I can understand that. And also, to be fair, if you need every issue of a comic book to have a scene of punchy-punchy, maybe these wouldn't work either. But, you know, if either of those is the case, and you find some Sandmans for a quarter, come on, take a shot. These are among the best quarter books I have ever found. Undeniably, these are quarter-bin steals. That wraps up my coverage of these three issues of Sandman bringing episode 95 of the podcast to a close, which also brings the epic, epic, epic episode 100 that much closer. But we have some work to do until we get to that, including episode 96, which will be more vertigo. And it's another issue from a series that I absolutely love. I know. No pressure. So next time, it's 100 Bullets, number 11. Cover date of June 2000. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode Sandman, the Vertigo Vortex, Neil Gaiman, or the podcast in general, Feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the Quarterbin. The Quarterbin podcast is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.